Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan, your host. And with me, we have a wonderful guest called Aftab Rahman. He hails from the Midlands. And Aftab is, you know, someone that I thought would be great to talk to because, you know, he worked for many years in boots, in the corporate world, in the pharmacy world as a pharmacist. And then he jumped, did his own thing. And he's done a whole bunch of different interesting stuff since that time. And Aftab, you know, you came across IFG recently. I'd love to hear firstly how you came across IFG. First of all, Ibrahim, assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Um, for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here and it's great to hook up with you guys. To be honest, is, is um, I was looking at finance from an Islamic perspective and we'll delve into that a bit more de- in detail about my history in terms of some of the things and the projects that we've done historically. But I was looking at recently what are the kind of opportunities there are for islamic commercial finance i was also looking at potentially house finance and i hadn't come across you guys and i know you guys have been the last four or five years you've been operating and so when i did a google search you came up and i looked at some of your articles i subscribed to you guys and uh, some of the content that you're doing is amazing some of the kind of the email campaigns that you're doing the kind of youtube videos and that's how we, you know, I basically came across you guys. And uh, and since then, we've obviously hooked up and I've took some advice of you recently. And then uh, one thing's led to another. And now you've pulled me into this interview. <laughs> Fantastic. For doing that. And you've also been investing away with our syndicate as well. How has your experience been with that? And um, so, how, how that whole thing came about and you know, how have you found it? Because for me, as a as someone who does this every week, really, every day, it's a very different experience. I always love to hear how other people have found it. The thing with the syndicate is, is it's very different because one of the things that I've personally struggled with when I was very young, actually, you know, I was probably 14 years of age. I did with my father invest in some shares. And at that time, it was mainly like British Gas and British Telecom. It was, you know, entities that were privatized, etc. So, but then I came away from that. We we're talking about the 19 kind of 90s, you know, and what I thought was I was always in, in a great situation in which companies could you invest in, which companies could you not invest in? Because I was also fearful from a point of view 
that I didn't want to invest in companies that involved riba or other areas which were civil. So I kind of came away from that and I couldn't be bothered with all the hard work and efforts trying, you know, do the due diligence, trying to find out what those companies are. You guys actually take that headache off. You do that. You look at certain companies, you look at the due diligence, you look at it from an Islamic perspective. Is it from a Sharia point of view, is it permissible to invest in that? And then you give your Islamic viewpoint with your background and the colleagues that you're associated with. So it takes that headache off. And from an investment perspective is you're coming up with some very new startups, very high risk, uh, albeit, you know, but at the same time, coming back from a business background, I realised that business is high risk. You can't avoid it. Whichever business you go into now, it's high risk. So effectively, you do some of the groundwork. And then as an, as an investor, you can come in, look at your portfolio, what you're offering. And if it's something interesting, then you invest in that. I've seen two of your recent investments and they were very good investments, you know, and I think there's potential for good growth, especially for people with slightly higher income. People got a bit more to invest. I know the last two rounds, yeah, I think it was a minimum income of two and a half thousand pounds spend. For some people, it's a good investment. Yeah. yeah. And from my perspective is, is, you know, you have an option whether you want to invest or not. You do your own due diligence. You look at the companies and you make a decision. And I think in the long run, hopefully some of these will pay off. And I think the way that you've pitched it is the fact that, well, you invest in some, you may gain some, you may lose some, you know. And that's a bit like stocks and shares, you know. But you do a bit more due diligence in, in actually you do get a sense of what the companies are trying to achieve, how they're trying to achieve it. And I think the key thing is, is also, I think you mentioned in a lot of these investments, is you actually invest in the people. It's the people. It's whether you have that belief in those individuals to deliver what they want to deliver. And I think the ones that I've seen so far are those individuals are actually, you know, very high performing individuals and they've got a very good opportunity and great potential to achieve success in some of the kind of things that they want to do. Oh, that's really interesting to hear. And I actually found that fascinating because you were contrasting that to public markets. And in our heads, as you said, this is a very niche kind of high risk, high reward, a small section of your portfolio thing. But it's interesting that, I mean, it is still a company, isn't it? So it's I found that fascinating. Now, I'd love to hear a bit more about your background. Where did you grow up? Was there any kind of entrepreneurial um, streak from the early days? Or were you pushed into pharmacy, you know, by your parents' chuckles or that sort of thing? How did it all come about? So, yeah, I mean, um, I'm a family of four brothers and I'm number three in the chain from the brothers. And my father came here in the 60s. Alhamdulillah, like many of the parents when they came in the 60s, we originally from Mirpur Azad Kashmir in Pakistan. I was actually born in Pakistan and I moved across when I was about three years of age. So I can't remember much of Pakistan. And from a very young age, my dad was always a grafter. Like many other parents, you know, whatever overtime there was, he'd do the overtime. Whatever weekends uh, he had to work, he'd work the weekends. And his philosophy was, I'm doing all this so that I can make a better life for you guys. I've worked hard for you. This is what I'm doing. And similarly, like his parents, and he was sending money back home. We lived in a two-bedroom terrace house. And I had a conversation with my father recently. And I said, how much did you buy that house for? Yeah. And I was, I was shocked, actually. It's, it's surprising. He said, I bought it for £50. Pounds. 
He bought a two-bedroom terrace house for fifty pounds. Yeah, this is like nineteen, probably it's you know seventy or something, or nineteen seventy-five or something. He bought it for fifty pounds. I thought, wow. And so, what was your income? And it was just so many. I can't, I can't remember how many shillings a week or something it was, you know. And I think he was paying off like five pound a year or something, or you know something ridiculous figure for the mortgage at that time, you know, for the house. And um, and obviously we, we progressed. My father. Through the help of my brothers and things like that, we we were in a two-bedroom terraced house. We then progressed into a better area of, of Derby. That's where we're from. But my father was always encouraging us to like make sure you study, make sure you work hard. You don't want to be a factory worker like me. You want to be in a better position. It was that hard work and effort that my father had. It rubbed off on his children. I was constantly studying, and I actually got decent GCSE grades and A-level grades. And I got into pharmacy. So I did my pharmacy in, in the Leicester School of Pharmacy. But in my younger days, there was no entrepreneurial spirit at all whatsoever. Apart from the odd shares that I invested, because my father says, well, what are these things? I think it's a good thing to invest in, you know. And he says, look, read all these documents and you tell me whether you should invest in it. And we did some of the stuff because I think it was the Thatcher era. So I think yeah. it was in uh, privatised and uh, I think it was BT and British Gas. And we invested in two or three of these things. And uh, we got dividends, and you know, it wasn't a massive amount. It was probably, you know, quite you know my mother she still had those BT shares, and oh, I think she'd uh, she'd made like a net loss oh. holding it over 20 years. Then I kind of took over her portfolio. Oh, well, yeah, it was good. We sold them on and we moved on and, and things like that. And I didn't really go into business. I guess where a lot of my earliest development, and this is a, a good takeout for other children. So I know one of the things that we want to get out of these podcasts is what take-outs can you get, what learnings, you know. I started working at a petrol station at the age of 15 uh, as a cashier, petrol cashier attendant. And, you know, I was this shy lad. I wouldn't even talk to anybody. I wouldn't say boo to anybody. I was always into my books and things like that, etc. And by working in a petrol station, it forced me to talk. It forced me to talk to customers. And some customers want to just have a chat with you. You know, this is where I started developing my communication skills. I had that confidence to deal with others. That was at the age of 15. At the age of 16, I actually started working for McDonald's. I was a breakfast lad. You're making the breakfast McMuffins and things like that. So my brother used to work. He managed to get me a job there. I did the interview, got in. Again, that was another learning experience because McDonald's, as you know, is a very rigorous operation, how they operate and how it's a very slick operation logistically, et cetera, et cetera. And that has still helped me in a lot of the things that I do now. That experience of working at McDonald's when I was 16, I think I worked for there for about a year, year and a half. Moved on to pharmacy, uh, went to university. Whilst I was at university, I worked in summer placements for Boots the Chemists. So that's basically within the field, just getting some experience, talking to customers, talking to people, talking to individuals, selling pharmacy products, working in the dispensary. And then um, after I kind of graduated from pharmacy, I applied for Boots of Chemist, got a position with them. I did my pre-registration placement with them. So I was with them for a year whilst I was doing my pre-registration placement. At the end of that, I decided to do what's called kind of reserve pharmacy work or local pharmacy work for Boots of Chemist. So I essentially what I was doing is, is I was going from store to store to store and I was covering like a hundred mile radius. So in that one year, I probably did 25, 30,000 miles. Uh, I was going from store to store. But the experience 
was brilliant because each store had its different niche of customers. Some customers would be very young, some would be very old. And the way that they would operate would be slightly different in each store. And you'd have different staff and you'd have to deal with them differently. And again, over that course of year, what that did is it developed me as an individual to, well, this is how you deal with certain individuals. This is how you deal with different people. This is how they operate. You also could actually see which stores were performing better and which stores were performing worse. So you could see these managers were really focused, how they operated, these ones weren't. And again, it's about taking the insights and learnings from that. About a year in after I had done kind of relief work, I became a pharmacy manager uh, in Corby. I did that for a few months. I then got promoted to be a store manager in Leicester. Did that for a year, got promoted again. I was a store manager in Long Eaton in Nottingham. So I was always moving up the ladder within store management and then moved to store management in Derby. And I actually got bored. At this stage, I had done management for about nine to 10 years. So I was with Boots, store to store, different stores, different objectives, learning the retail side, learning the pharmacy side, the customer service, growing the sales, et cetera. And I actually got bored and thought, this is so boring, I can't be doing it. An opportunity came up in the head office in Nottingham Beeston. So I thought, let me apply for this position. It was a position for an operations manager in a dispensing warehouse. Nothing to do with pharmacy, by the way, apart from the fact that it's just shipped out medicines to all the stores. And at that time, I thought, well, this looks interesting. And they were looking like for a few operations managers. I applied for that role and there were four operation managers. I was the only one who got that role from outside of logistics environment. So all the other operation managers were from a logistics background. I was the only one in there who went in from a pharmacy background. And that was a massive learning curve. You know, when you're working in retail and then you go into logistics, it's a totally different field. And I was dealing with an automated warehouse where we're shipping over a million medicines a night on peak days. And essentially, we, had, we closed two different warehouses, merged it into one. It was the most automated warehouse across Europe at the time. I was working with engineers from Germany, had to understand logistics, had to understand how unions work, had to understand HR, all new stuff for me. And again, it was it's like my mind was like, wow, this is a brilliant learning experience. You know, something totally different, nothing to do with pharmacy. I left pharmacy at that point. I did that for a couple of years and then I went into project management. I got involved with projects in China, bringing in kind of Roll containers for uh, for stores. Working with, collaboratively with a lot of teams, working with buying teams, working with law the law departments. Um, went into risk management. I did also some systems testing. We had to go to Germany and new software development for the company. And I did that and also facilities management. So we opened another warehouse and got involved with the facility side. So from my perspective, it was so much learning and development. So I was there for like four or five years and I was thinking like at the end of this, you know, you kind of progress up the ladder and you get to a certain situation thinking like, you know, hold on, all the money I'm earning is all I get tax at high rate tax. You know, I'm losing all this money and surely this isn't, I can do better than this. And you get to a certain level in your career, you're thinking like I've got to my peak and it's getting very difficult to progress any further. So I started looking around and that opportunity, at that point in time, Ibrahim, what happened was is the government had made legislation. I thought before we move on to the next phase, it'd be really interesting to hear about what you think were the key qualities that got you all those promotions in the first 10 years 
because presumably that doesn't always happen to everyone. And then what was the contrast between what you were doing previously and then, I guess, the corporate world, which you were in, you know, for the next, I guess, 10 years or so, and your recommendations to people, like, should they go into the corporate world or not? And and you the kind of pros and cons to all of that side of things as well. I know there's like five questions in there, but over yeah. to you. No, no. With regards to the promotions, the promotions were all about the kind of sheer determination and driving you know, promotions are based upon your results. If you're producing good sales for the company, we had like a scorecard, balanced scorecard. And on that, you were assessed on what's your, how good on your operations aspect, how good on your sales aspect, your training and development of your teams, um, how you get on with your teams and development. So a lot of that is about understanding what the company wants and how you achieve that. And each individual is different and each individual, if you're really focused and determined, you'll do really well. And ultimately, my recommendation is is for individuals going into business or in, into a corporate world is try and get a, a kind of a job promotion every one to two years in your early years. Don't stay in one position for too long. So every one to two years, you want enough time to get the experience in that field, but keep moving don't stay in that field because you'll get stagnant and you'll get bored like I did. And you want to get a different learning experience. So every one or two years, start, keep moving. Don't stay in the same position for too long. That was the promotional aspect. I then moved into, like you said, the corporate world, you know, when I went into head office. And the key learnings from the corporate world massively different because essentially I was moving from a retail environment to more of a strategic environment, you could call it. You know, and the corporate world is more about working with bigger teams, with bigger money, uh, bigger budgets, you know, million pound budgets, bigger teams. And it's effectively how you can run that in a logistic environment, how you can run that strategically and keep your costs down with bigger budgets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we uh, kind of manage that side of things. What was the rest of the questions, the brain most? And do you recommend youngsters to go into the corporate world? I would, yes. Yeah. I think it will come later in the conversations that we have and the next phases that you're on about is that the main thing for me was is like I felt I probably stayed there for too long. But then if I look back now, if you connect the dots, a lot of the things that I am doing now go back to boots the chemists what i learned dealing with directors dealing with stakeholder management risk management prince two some of the prince two stuff that i did some of the retail environment dealing with customers dealing with complaints dealing with hr the things that i can deal with now are because i have that environment and because i had that experience if i went straight into an entrepreneurial environment i'd make loads of mistakes making loads of mistakes and i'll be learning the hard way. I would definitely recommend that you would get some corporate experience. Not Probably not as long as 14 years that I did though. I wouldn't stay in a company for 14 years. I would say five to 10 years in different companies. And I think good age to start your entrepreneurial kind of startups is around 30 years of age. If you see a good opportunity, go for it. But I think, you know, after university, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years, try and get some experience in different fields. Don't stick to one area, keep moving around and then start your kind of entrepreneurial journey. Because I think if you did that, you'll make less mistakes in it. That makes a lot of sense and it completely chimes, I think, with my own experience. I mean, we're, I'm 29 now, approaching 30 and just jumped in. And I agree with you. I think the corporate will 
teaches you a lot about the kind of the bigger picture and you know kind of zooming out and seeing how business could evolve in 10 years time and it allows you to kind of make decisions now for yeah. that period and even you know hiring decisions and you know the infrastructure that you have in place it kind of keeps that in mind but then at the same time i guess for you had that kind of you know really grassroots information as well yes. which i think is vital i think the only exception i would say brahim to that is is if you have a mentor who is with you and you start business at a younger age say like in the 20s and they've got a lot of experience you don't need to go down the corporate route so if you've got a father or uncle or a brother or somebody else who's done business already i don't think you need that 10 years worth of experience because if you've got somebody to guide you and mentor you i think we've had this conversation before that if you get that mentoring you wouldn't be making the mistakes because you'll always be going back i'm just thinking about doing this what do you think and they'll say and i don't do this do this do that etc so if you've got good mentoring at a younger age you don't need to have that eight nine ten years of experience in the, in the corporate world mittal you know the steel magnet he sent his son out to work you know he's a multi-billionaire he sent his son out to work in a corporate environment and then come back to the company because he wanted to hit law. He didn't have to go out and work in a corporate environment and come back in there. So I think massive learning curve if you can work in a different environment and then set up a young business. Makes sense. And, and then I, start, I, I stopped you know, just as you were talking about how you came across and you know the opportunity to jump ship and do your own thing, I think. What happened was I'm from Derby and one of the things, there was a new legislation changed by the government whereby historically if you were to purchase a pharmacy you'd be typically spending for a good pharmacy well over half a million quid a million quid just to get in and one of the reasons was that in particular is that pharmacies weren't able to open in another location if there was a pharmacy within a mile of each other so it was a bit of like a monopoly so those people who were already in and had the money they were basically minting it and effectively you couldn't open another pharmacy the supermarkets kicked up a big fuss with the government saying look you know these guys have got monopolies you know they're not giving a brilliant service and they wanted a piece of that pie so the supermarkets pushed the government to say look you know you've got to open the legislation up and over time what they said is okay how do we open legislation but we don't create a free-for-all like and you know loads of pharmacies opening so one of the things that they did is, is they said okay fair enough if you open a pharmacy and it operates for 100 hours and remember that time supermarkets Markets were open early, finished working seven days a week, etc. So it would make it easier for the supermarkets to open 100 hours a week. So they put a condition: yes, you can basically open a pharmacy anywhere without getting a license, even if it's next to uh, another pharmacy within a mile of each other, and as long as it did a minimum of 100 hours trading hours. And remember, the cost of pharmacies is very expensive, so you would need at least two, two and a half pharmacies, two FTEs at least to operate a pharmacy. Um, what they didn't realize, in particular, a lot of the Pakistani community saw this as an opportunity to open pharmacies near medical centers, not in supermarkets, but near medical centers, whereby you've got all this footfall coming out. So you could potentially open a pharmacy right next to a medical practice and get all those prescriptions coming your way. So effectively, and there was a company, uh, it was a medical surgery, medical centre, who wanted to relocate into a brand new building. And the owners of that building wanted to have a pharmacy in there. And basically, there was a tender process. So they had a tender process to say, uh, who wants to go in this pharmacy? By the way, we want lots of money for it. Uh, and we want the right people to run it. 
I approached them alongside my brother and one of the things that, you know, we had to do, and again, this goes back to the experience of working in Boots the Chemist. I had to do lots of presentations to directors when I was in head office. And one of the things I never had to pitch, it was a bit like Dragon's Den, I had to go and pitch to this company to say, okay, why they should allow us to have this pharmacy and why they should give it to us, what benefit do we bring to them, and also what financial capital we're going to put into it. They wanted a premium. What premium are you going to put in and what's your kind of financial bid? And I was up against Lloyd's Pharmacy. At that time, it was the second biggest pharmacy in the UK. So I was up against Lloyd's Pharmacy. I was up against lots of different other operators. And effectively, we did a pitch, we did a bid, and uh, this is me and my brother, and we pitched over, I won't say exact figure, but it was well over half a million quid you know, at that point. And by that point, we didn't have the money either. So we didn't even have the money. We, we just did <laughs> a pitch, yeah. We did our sums. We did some due diligence. We forecasted what items were coming in, what was the turnover, what could we do. We pitched at it, and we said over half a million quid. The next thing they said, fine, fair enough, can you give us proof how you're going to get the money? I thought, oh my goodness gracious me, how the hell are we going to do this now? So we went to a bank, we went to Lloyd's Bank and said, look, you know, I'm a pharmacist, my brother's a pharmacist, this is our income, etc. We both had our own properties and things like that, etc., etc. So we did a pitch and, th- and they actually said, right, you know, it was a safe sector, the pharmacy sector. And we did a business plan, all sorts of things. And they were very pleased with this and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll meet the costs to open this pharmacy. So that kind of helped with the case. But that wasn't the challenge. The challenge was, whenever I've done everything before previously, I've always tried to avoid the interest route. So the next challenge is, is like, we need to raise over half a million pounds for a brand new startup. How the hell do we do it? And alhamdulillah, that's my wife. She said something to me, even though we had this loan as a kind of a, in the background available to us from Lloyds Bank. We thought, how the hell do we do this? Um, so we start exploring at that time that was the first time we started exploring islamic finance at that point there was hsbc amount of finance and i approached them my house was cash at the time it was a very small house i remortgaged my house my brother remortgaged his house and my wife said something to me going back to that point she said that Aftab, you, you really don't want to do this is it worth it if you're going to take an interest-based loan she mentioned something to me, and I knew this, and I didn't really recall it. And she says that Allah declares war on those who take riba. And I thought, oh my goodness gracious me. He says, do you want Allah to declare war on you? It resonated to me, and it kind of, oh my goodness gracious, I need to do something like this. So we started looking at Islamic kind of process of how we can do it. So we remortgaged my brother's house, remortgaged my house. And then I took my business plan which I prepared for the bank anyway. I took it to family and friends and other professionals, and I got a multitude of investors in the business. And I said, look, we'll give you an investment in this property and we'll give you a profit share back with the view that we'll return your money and you'll get a profit share. But we're looking to not give you long-term equity. Over three, four, five years, we'll clear your funds. So Alhamdulillah, we managed to raise well over half a million pounds through Islamic finance and through family and friends, etc. So without avoiding, without going through a bank loan. And I found that we, we got the contract. This is 2009, by the way. We went in 2009. Within a year, alhamdulillah, that business was turning over one and a half million pounds a year. And early this year, alhamdulillah, we're the busiest pharmacy in the whole of Derby. 
and that particular pharmacy, we also got um, shortlisted for the finalists for pharmacy of the year with the chemist and druggist. So Alhamdulillah, over a nine-year period or 10 years period now, you know, Alhamdulillah, we've cleared all the individuals that loaned us money. And Alhamdulillah, as part of that process, one of the companies that competed, remember I was saying, telling you Lloyd's Pharmacy was bidding against it. Effectively, we their business ran down. And they had a normal hours contract, which is like a, a normal contract. And what we did is we managed to buy them out and relocate their contract into our pharmacy. So now we're also a normal hours contract pharmacy. We don't have to open 100 hours a week like we did historically. So the kind of takeouts there for us was like when you do your due diligence, you do your planning, you know what you want to achieve and you can demonstrate. It's a bit like the investors who come to you guys. They do a pitch to you guys and you think, you know, shall we invest in this or not? And again, that was a lot of that was a kind of a historical experience of how you pitch to people, how you present it, showing your skill sets. I was obviously a pharmacist. But at that point, I hadn't been practicing pharmacy for four or five years and I had to go back into pharmacy. A lot of that is about determination and that kind of focus. The other challenge that we had is that we opened that in 2009. That was July 2009. At the same time, what happened was another opportunity came for another 100-hour pharmacy in Ashby de la Zouch in Leicestershire, and we didn't certainly didn't have the capital for that. But that was a much lower investment because that was a property opposite a medical centre. Um, we managed to basically, probably about 20% of the cost of what we spent in Derby, we managed to get that project underway. We did that four months after opening uh, Scoops Derby and that project we did it differently because we bought in two partners so effectively there's four partners in that business but we run that as a silent operation got other partners to invest in that and alhamdulillah that's still trading and that's doing over half a million pound a year turnover and we, we've still got those two businesses but but those businesses for me led me to the next phase yeah because you need cash flow you can't open other businesses unless you've got cash flow and mm-hmm. unless, unless you clear your debts and you move on etc so you call pear tree pharmacy um, in derby that's my cash cow really and that effectively helped me move into the next phase of my entrepreneurial career so i don't know whether you want me to go into that or not no no this is the bit where you went into the dessert dessert game right yes that's right yes absolutely it's an outsider it seems so random how did that whole thing come about and you know you must have been starting from scratch in many ways it was random it wasn't even planned it wasn't even planned it just happened by chance and the way it happened was is basically um a new milkshake bar uh, ice cream parlor opened in derby and i would frequent it and i'd get milkshakes for the kids you know i go there and and uh, i get ice cream and milkshakes every now and again and and i go quite regular to get products there and the the owner there was a young lad who had come out of university, set this business up, and he was selling his products so cheap. The premises weren't in a very good state in terms of visually, uh, the layout, the presentation, his costs. His products were amazing, by the way. You know, so the milkshakes were amazing, the products were amazing and everything. His custom service was good, everything. But he, he just needed a bit of kind of management advice. You know, he needed some kind of, oh, look, you know, you, you need to this, you need to that. So I, whenever I used to come in, I'd, I'd often give him advice. I think if you change your prices a bit higher, you could charge more. If you did this, if you did this, and I was always like, because you know, I just had that entrepreneurial spirit. 
I could see like the potential in this business and there was no intention of purchasing the business at all or get involved. And, and he said, look, you know, I've put all my money into this business and like I'm cash strapped. So I said to him, look, what if I invest in your business, but I don't have the time because I've got my pharmacies and, you know, I ain't got time to invest in physically work here. What if I invest in your business, but I'll put a lot of cash into the business and we'll do like a relay out and we'll do this and we'll do that. And we'll look at the pricing structure and things like that. And effectively what we did is, is that, so I invested in this business and this is 2013 now. So we opened my pharmacy 2009, 2013, I invested in this business and we rebranded it. And I gave my management experience, my kind of presentation experience, my retail management experience. So I said, oh, let's try and, and do these changes. And we start doing hot desserts as well, introducing new product ranges, changing the pricing, made things a lot more expensive, uh, increasing the margins. So he was making profit, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was is um, the lease was up on that property. And I didn't realize that was one error that I made. And the landlord wanted the, uh, the property back. And I thought, oh, my God, I've invested all this money and the landlord wants his property back. So we managed to negotiate with the landlord a bit of an extension. But in the meantime, what we did is, is we started looking for another properties. And a few doors up, there was another property that was struggling. So I approached them, took over that business with the view of doing a massive refit. So we refitted that business, converted it into a dessert parlor. But one of the game changers that we did at this stage is also is, is as part of that new build, we actually started manufacturing an ice cream. So this is Italian gelato now. So yeah, we started yeah. manufacturing an ice cream rather than buying it from another vendor. And actually our quality improved, we could charge more for it. And the product was a very premium product. So I opened that site, that site because it was a very seasonal business. We did food and desserts. So this is 2014 now. So I opened that business, that did phenomenally well. And then my partner decided to exit in 2015 he wanted to do his own thing so i took over his site and we changed the model approach now so i had two essentially two dessert parlors on one road three doors for, away from each other amazing yeah. and, but, and they were both doing really well so i had two sides three doors away from and they're still there today now you know three doors away from each other so i had one that was doing food and desserts in and primarily it was a sit-in restaurant the other one I thought, how can we position this a bit differently? So I thought, I'll go down the kind of dessert delivery route. So we made one business effectively a delivery business and another business like a sit-down business. And the delivery business just shut off. We didn't realize, you know, me and my wife were running that business. And we just didn't realize the success of having a delivery business for ice cream and milkshakes and we did phenomenally really really phenomenal success with that and that was in 2013 from that we then opened a, another dessert parlor in nottingham that was in 2017 that's our biggest site that's a 60 seater just doing desserts in 2019 i opened another site in derby with a slightly different model where we did food and desserts, but more like burgers and peri-peri chicken. So not a full on menu, like having Scoop's Diner. Yeah. yeah. So just to jump in, so speaking to someone who's never worked in like a restaurant type environment. Yeah. Um, I was a delivery driver once actually for a restaurant, but that doesn't really count. I guess you have that retail experience from the pharmacy, but the whole you know, I'm just thinking for myself personally that the idea of going in, buying a shop and then fitting it out, I have no idea about fitting out things and then running, you know, a service and running kind of, you know, a kitchen and all that sort of thing. 
how did you like learn that? Did you get help from people? Did you get managers in? How did that whole thing happen? Yeah, interesting. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. So when we opened Petri Pharmacy and Ashby Pharmacy, one of the things that I learned from Boots is, is that when you decide on a project and you know what you want to do is bring in professionals to help you give a view of the layout and presentation, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found when I did the layouts for Petri Pharmacy and Ashby Pharmacy is, is that I bring in a few professionals and they would give advice and you learn bits of knowledge from each one. And ultimately that shaped the pharmacy and the layout design. And essentially I did the same thing with um, Scoop Steiner where I did the layout myself, to be honest. I didn't bring in um, third party professionals because I had done two kind of layouts in Petri Pharmacy and Ashby Pharmacy. But what I did do is, is I did bring in some people to give me some advice on how the ice cream counters and the layouts, etc., how it could work, how we get the maximum seating. I brought in professionals to give us experience in seating. The layout was mine, but I actually brought in lots of different professionals to help me do the layout. And as a combination of different advice and feedback and collaborative work, I was able to then do that design and layout. The hardest challenge actually, Ibrahim, is wasn't the design side. The hardest challenge was the menu. And, you know, I was a bit of a foodie anyway. What we did is, is we kind of explored different menus up and down the country. And Derby's a bit backwards when it comes to like London and other big cities. And it's a very sleepy town kind of thing, you know. So no one was doing gourmet burgers. No one was doing wood fired oven pizzas as an example, in Derby. So I introduced wood-fired oven pizzas, I introduced gourmet burgers. I introduced a brand new menu range that other people weren't doing. I introduced, with, with my partners, gelato, Italian gelato. No one was doing Italian gelato in Derby. So we were doing a lot of innovation, and a lot of that is, is about a lot of reading, getting insights, speaking to other people, and trying to be ahead of the curve. So we were always doing things, but the key kind of learn out, take out from that is, is actually is, you have to do collaborative working, otherwise you'll mess up, you'll cock up. If you don't do the work with other people, you know, I took advice from my wife, I took advice from different people. We had great challenges, but through discussion, dialogue, tears, sweat, everything, we got through it, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's such an interesting, I think an inspiring story. And perhaps maybe, you know, we should at some point get you on to do another podcast and, you know, focus on lots of other bits that, you know, I've wanted to talk about, but we've not really had time to do. Aftab, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Are there kind of any final thoughts that, you know, you'd like to kind of give to our audience about, you know, the learning that you've had in your story and your journey and what they could perhaps benefit from? Yeah, a few things I didn't mention earlier. I think the first thing that you need is that whenever you do any project you've got to have the right intentions it's the niya behind it you got that wrong everything else will go wrong if you don't have the right intention and the reward is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if you have the right intention so when I wanted to open the pharmacy for instance I said ya Allah you know I'm doing this one is as an income and provision for my family and it's a form of ibadah as well making income for your family there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time I want to serve my community because this is in Derby this is my home city and it's a Muslim community around me it's predominantly Muslim community in that area and I want to be in a position that I want to give good healthcare provision for my community you know and I want them to prosper similarly when I opened the dessert parlor I had the intention that I wanted it for the family and I wanted a halal environment. I wanted to start doing gourmet burgers and pizzas because 
the only ones who were doing it were not halal in Derby. I wanted to give that provision for the community. So the first takeout, I would say, is, is always try to make sure that your intentions are pure and you have good intentions because then the reward is with Allah and everything opens up for you. I think that's the key thing at the beginning. Thing. The other thing I would say take out is you need a lot of support from people around you. And Alhamdulillah, uh, my wife has been very supportive. You know, any entrepreneurial business that you do, you'll find that you have to make sacrifices. And often, I don't know if this is the case with yourself, Ibrahim, is, is that, you know, often it, it's your kids and your wife that suffer because you, the hours that you put, yeah. something has to give. So when you're putting long hours into your business, something else will slip. Um, similarly, when I'm working at the pharmacy, I know that the dessert piles aren't doing as well. If I'm in the dessert piles, the pharmacy is not doing as well. So you can't have eyes everywhere. You need to, and that's the next takeout. So is, is if you've got a good supportive team, and alhamdulillah, my wife, my kids have been supportive, my parents have made duas, et cetera. That's point number two. So you need a good supportive family structure team around you. The intentions, number one, family structure. Number three, build a team. Yeah. If you want to grow, build a team. You can't be everywhere. Yeah. You are only as good as your team. Yeah. So if you have a great team around you, they will help you to prosper. And number four, keep innovating. Now that's probably my last take out is that, you know, don't stand still because if you stand still, competition will catch you up. So keep innovating, keep doing different things. So I did like gelato and I did pizzas. I come up with different menu items. We particularly focused also, I didn't mention it earlier, that our dessert parlors are predominantly a delivery model. So we focus on a delivery model as opposed to walk-in model. So 60-70% of ourselves are our delivery model. So again, that was a game changer because a lot of other businesses kind of focused on inside sales. And if you look at the current environment for COVID-19, we're in a position where we've actually benefited because we're a delivery model, where a lot of restaurants have struggled. So keep the innovation going as well. That's the kind of final take-out. It's been an absolute pleasure having you and uh, I've you know learned a tremendous amount so I'm, I have no doubt that our audience will have as well. Jazakallah for your time and uh, I wish you all the best in your future endeavours as well. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.